Our passage this morning will be from the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And as you turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, I wanted to open with uh, talking about how many messages we see every day in the world around us. Uh, there's, we're bombarded with messages every day. And you just drive down the highway or you're at school or in the workplace or on the computer and you're, there are so many messages that come across your path. Uh, I was curious, how many messages do we see in a day? And I, I Googled it and the first result was basically all I needed to know. The first result said, 500 plus social media statistics you must know in 2023. <laughs> and I felt overwhelmed already. Our world is truly bombarded with messages. And it's possible in the midst of all of those things to stay focused on what's most important to us. And our passage this morning is the central story of the Bible. It's the, the bullseye of God's redemptive plan coming to fruition after millennia. And it's possible to get distracted with many good things and to forget what is that core message that we are to be about as God's people. And a week after Easter, as we continue on through the year, it's good to be reminded of just who Jesus is and uh, what, that he is worthy of our attention. So if you would, in Mark chapter 1, we're going to read just the first 11 verses of Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Amen. 
Would you join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us your word and for sending Jesus to this world. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, at these verses, that you would give us attention to this passage. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work among us in our hearts, in the proclaiming and in the hearing of it. And we ask that all of this would bring glory to the one that we want to be the center of our attention to Jesus. In his name, amen. The book of Mark is one of four Gospels, uh, and the word gospel means good news, and it is uh, the Greek for uh, the good tidings or the good news. Um, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of them have many overlapping and similar uh, stories in them, but they're like four different camera angles on this most important event the life of Jesus, of his coming into the world, of his dying, of his resurrection. And each of the Gospels has a slightly different focus for them. Uh, Mark is much shorter and has a lot of overlapping material with Matthew and Luke. John takes a completely different approach and shows the divinity of Jesus uh, with different I am statements throughout the book of John. Uh, all of these men were either eyewitnesses directly, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, or those who wrote for eyewitnesses. And we think that Mark was uh, both an associate of Paul because of scriptures, other scriptures written about him, and of Peter uh, because of things that, that Peter wrote uh, about referencing uh, Mark. So wherever, whichever eyewitnesses he talked about, we see that Mark is a man of action. And he takes us through this short, very abbreviated gospel, the shortest of the four, on a mission to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He also wants to show us that Jesus is the suffering servant and that Jesus came for not just Jews, but also for Gentiles. So Mark leaves out a lot of details, uh, but he starts uniquely among the four Gospels by saying that it's the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He says it right from the start, and that word Gospel is what you've probably heard a lot around here if you've been here, uh, the good news of Jesus and his work. So in these first 11 verses, Mark is eager to show the reader that Jesus is worthy of our attention even without Jesus saying any words in this particular passage. If you're taking notes, there are two reasons given in this text that our attention should be on Jesus. The first is the promised preparer, and the second is the divine affirmation. The promised preparer and the divine affirmation. As humans, we live in a world of uncertainties. If you think of the things that we keep with us as, uh, as, a, as a safety, or as insurance in case uh, something happens that we're not prepared for. For some people, it's a security camera so that they can know what happened uh, when they were not there. For some people, it's an emergency fund of cash 
or a first aid kit because we don't know if somebody's going to get hurt. Some people might, parents might keep an extra diaper in the bag or college students a granola bar for extra energy in your backpack. Uh, the reality is that humans don't know the future and we have entire professions that are built on our lack of omniscience. The insurance industry is all about what might happen at some point in the future. Uh, the stock market is based on not knowing what companies are going to do today or tomorrow, what's going to happen. And college students, even the education system, is about things that we don't yet know. And as we're in finals week, some of you may wish that the education system would just go away. But we don't know the future. And can you imagine how this would change if humans knew the future? Uh, or can you imagine our shock if someone said to us, yes, this is exactly how I planned it 400 years ago. We would think, how can that, that there's no way, how could somebody have done that? How could they have uh, looked, known in the, in the past and coordinated those things to be ready for this time? And that's the difference between God and humans, is that God does know the future. He is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. And we see in verses 2 and 3 that God knew the future. And it's easy for us to kind of gloss over this and forget this because now we're looking back on this fulfilled prophecy. But the wonder of this in verses 2 and 3 is that hundreds of years before it happened, God said that what happens in the book of Mark was prophesied and was foretold. <clears throat> Throughout scripture, we see that God has made promises and then he has kept those promises. Completed deliveries, transactions finished. And it's possible for us as Christians reading the Bible to become dull through overexposure that Jesus is, has come in fulfillment to prophecy. And so he is subtly reminding us even here that God is trustworthy because he keeps his promises. Now to the Jews living in this time, it had been 400 years since the last prophet. And in the book of Malachi, uh, some prophecies were given. And after the book of Malachi ended, then there were about 400 years without a prophet from God. And there's no scripture from that period. Now we know in world history that a lot of things were happening. Alexander the Great came in. These things were foretold by Daniel, the prophet Daniel, that this was going to happen. And then uh, the, the Maccabees and the Romans took over from the Greeks. All of this stuff is not covered in scripture. It's the gap between Malachi and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But God has included what we need to know about him. And during this gap, you wonder, what were the people of God thinking? Wondering, is God, has God forgotten about us? Has he uh, forgotten these promises that he made to us? So in verses 2 and 3, Mark says that the coming of Jesus is in direct response to divine prophecy. And he quotes Isaiah. Some translations say the prophets. Uh, but he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he does get to Isaiah in verse 3, but he also quotes Malachi in verse 2. And he says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then in Malachi 4, he makes another reference to this Elijah. 
He says in Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. With that verse, the Old Testament ends. And the Jews that would be waiting for the Messiah and trying to understand what is going to happen next would be thinking, who is this Elijah person that's coming? Now, Elijah the prophet was considered one of the greatest Old Testament prophets and the symbolic forerunner of the Messiah. Elijah, as you may know from 1 Kings, had confronted the worshipers of Baal, confronted King Ahab directly to his face, uh, challenged the prophets of Baal to a showdown where he prayed and asked God to bring fire from heaven. Elijah was the one who had raised a dead boy from the grave, from death. And this coming of the Elijah-like figure was the anticipation, the next thing that the Israelites, the Jewish people, were waiting for. So these prophesies of Malachi, the anticipation, and even the clothes that John was wearing, Elijah wore uh, uh, goatskin, and here's John in verse 6, clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist like the prophet's uniform. And we see the excitement building among all these people that John appeared in verse 5, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. So that's the first prophecy in verse 2 from Malachi, talking about the messenger who would come before the day of the Lord. In verse 3, we see another prophecy, and this is what Kyle read for us in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, as you may know, it comes at this seam between uh, two parts of Isaiah, and it's almost like the continental divide in the book. In the first 39 chapters, we see prophecies of judgment and condemnation, and right before this passage that Kyle read for us, we see the failure of good King Hezekiah to defend the people of God, trading the short-term, trading the long-term for the short-term. And so there's disappointment and judgment that we see in the first 39 chapters. But the second chapters from 40 through the end of the book give prophecies of hope. And these prophecies are uh, dramatic and future-looking and glorious. And this passage that Mark quotes, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, this comes from three verses into that new section, reminding us that the hope that Isaiah promised is coming from this event that's about to happen. Another part that's easy to miss in this is that when it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, that's John's, John the Baptist's purpose statement, his mission. What is he called to do? to make the way of the Lord straight, to make his path straight. So whoever this is that comes after John is the Lord and has all of the authority and the ruling power of the Lord. So we see that Jesus is worthy of attention because his coming was not some random spontaneous event, but it was foretold 
and it was brought in by this promised forerunner, this promised preparer, hundreds of years before the event. So the prophecies in verses 2 and 3 both use the word preparing, and John's message emerges as one being sent to prepare. Now the picture here of preparing the way of the Lord comes from uh, when kings would travel to their realm to visit different parts of the realm. There would be forerunners that would go, that would let the people know the king is coming. And the people would, be, would go out and would try to clean up things around their town. A couple weeks ago, our president traveled to Ireland. And there were pictures in the news of people preparing the way for the president of this other country to come to them. They put up posters of him. They probably cleaned up some streets. They probably did things to get ready for his coming. <clears throat> and this coming of a king would require preparation. You didn't want the king to ride through on his royal carriage or on his horse, and there's a pothole right in front of your house, and the horse breaks a leg or the carriage bumps. Uh, that's, a bad, that's a bad preparation for the king. We see that this preparation God had before the beginning of time, this centerpiece of God's plan to bring Jesus. And in Ephesians 1, it says that he was bringing about redemption. His plan of redemption began before the beginning, before we were created. And we see here that Jesus is not some spontaneous arrival, but the actual focal point of history. So we see this preparation, and we see John urging people to welcome the rule of the coming Messiah instead of to resist him. Now, either way, the king is coming. But in the one case, people are prepared. In the other case, they're embarrassed when he arrives. Mark loves to move us along quickly, like a skilled movie editor, cutting scenes and focusing our attention on what's most important. If we read all four of the Gospels together, there are other details that are given in Luke and John and Matthew, but Mark wants to focus our attention on this coming of Jesus. And so he jumps very quickly, skips John's upbringing, all sorts of interesting things there, and he just says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the, the wilderness was a time, was a place of desolation. And if you've been to Israel and been out in this part, there is nothing there. It's like West Texas, but less interesting. <laughs> this wilderness is not a place that humanly we would expect this forerunner to come. Just like God didn't send Jesus to Jerusalem where we might expect him, but he sent him to Bethlehem. And when Jesus comes, referenced in verse 9, he comes from Nazareth. And at other times, the religious leaders said, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? God often chooses to come to unexpected places to do his work. And this is where John is. Suddenly, John is deluged with attention. There probably weren't a lot of people out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey and walking around with camel's hair garments. Uh, but now, once the people start to hear the rumor of him and they see the, uh, 
the possibility that this might be the Elijah that is coming before the Messiah. Suddenly they're very interested. And so there's this swarm of attention. It says all the country, verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him. It was the thing to do. If people had Instagram, they'd be posting pictures of them with the crowds by John. But despite all this attention on John the Baptist, it's clear that his mission is to get people ready for the real Savior. That's not very common when people have attention or a spotlight on them to point other people to Jesus. That's a pretty good life purpose for us. What if people said of you, your life, his life purpose, her life purpose is to point people to Jesus? A friend recently had their granddaughter with them, talking to them, and their granddaughter was, had apparently discovered recently uh, the word hobby. And so she asked her grandmother, Grandma, what are your hobbies? And her grandmother thought for a minute and thought, I, I guess I, I don't know. And the granddaughter came up with the answer. She said, I know what it is. Your hobby is Jesus. You're always talking about him to other people. And this identity that John had when he was in the spotlight to point people to Jesus is the thing that should mark God's people of all time. In verse 4, we see John proclaiming this baptism in the wilderness, and it's for a specific purpose. It's for the forgiveness of sins, calling to people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so it sets up our understanding and our expectation that in this book that sin must be dealt with and that Jesus is coming ultimately to deal with sin. And the way to ready the hearts, the way to prepare for that inspection is to recognize that we on our own have sin and we have to do something about it. Now this would be probably upsetting to and even shocking to the Jewish hearers that heard them because they consider themselves to be uh, genetically the people of God because they were Jewish. They belonged with uh, whatever God was doing. They were part of it, children of Abraham, and because of that, they deserved to be included in God's plan. So this message of John calling people to individual heart preparation to asking them to focus on their own heart, not on the poor state of affairs in Israel or kicking out the Romans or all of the other things that could take their attention. Their focus, the focus of John is this sin problem and the individual heart preparation. In a place like a church, a church like this with lots of young people and children, and those who've grown up in a Christian home, it's easy to not realize what a blessing it is. Those who are a first-generation Christian who don't have any record of parents or grandparents who are believers understand what a blessing it is uh, to come to Christ and have the forgiveness. But if you're born uh, growing up where you come to church every Sunday, you read the Bible, your parents talk about God, it's easy to think that you have a group identity that means that you're okay with God, that you don't need to do anything with it. And it's possible that you're hearing today and you're just coasting along. 
your parents are Christians, you go to church, and you think your relationship with God is fine. And you may even have some things that you do that nobody knows about, and you think you're pretty clever because nobody knows what they are. And you think the, their Bible may say that there's a consequence for that or for sin, but you, so far you've been pretty good at hiding it. And the message of John and this individual focus that we see throughout Scripture is one that God, who created your brain and your heart, knows your thoughts. And we have to be individually responding to God. John talks about these people more in John 3. But this would be striking at the root of their pride as children of Abraham. What? You mean I can't just go along with the identity of my family? I have to also be directly related to God through Jesus? Now this initial preparation isn't speaking of Jesus, but he's coming. And we see these things develop as this passage unfolds. So the question is, do you recognize your individual need for God? It's this universal pandemic of sin that required Jesus to have to come as part of this good news. In addition to John the Baptist calling Jews to repent, he is baptizing them as they confess their sins. And when we read this, the baptism of John can seem confusing to us. And it's important to see how it contrasts with the baptism that Jesus institutes for his followers after his resurrection. You know how there's a center of gravity for things. If you hold something up that can tip one way or the other, like a seesaw or a pivot point or a fulcrum, all of these things are where there's, there's a balance that's shifting. And in this particular passage, unlike other parts of scripture, we see the Old Covenant and the Old Testament giving way to the New. All of these Old Testament prophets represented, summarized in John as the last prophet, being represented by the coming of Jesus. So it would make sense that there would be this transitional time. When John was born 30 years before, one of the prophecies given of him was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his youth, from the womb, it says. So this choice of using baptism in conjunction in following people turning from their sins wasn't a pragmatic choice, but it was instructed by God for specific purposes. Now, both of these baptisms, Christian baptism and John's baptism, use immersion, and they're connected with a turning from sin. But John's baptizing is for a temporary season, and it was incomplete without Christ. To see this, I think one of the best places to look that this was how it would have been understood in the early church is in Acts 19. And in Acts 19, Paul actually encounters people who are seeking God, but who have been baptized only with John's preparatory baptism. Here's what Acts 19, 1 through 5 say. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we can see that these people were baptized by John, but they had to be told that that wasn't enough. With John as the redemptive hinge, as this epic of history turns from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, we see that he is this forerunner pointing people to Jesus. So John's baptism is limited, and it's temporary, and it's to prepare Jews for the coming of the king. It's looking ahead, but it's intentionally incomplete. And we see this in verse 8, where John himself says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So in contrast, the Christian ordinance of baptism symbolizes being united with Christ, of identifying with his death and coming up in, in resurrection with him. And unlike John's, it's done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as commanded by Jesus. Now the last few weeks, a few weeks ago, we had several baptisms, and Lord willing, in a few weeks more, we'll have four more baptisms coming. It's a wonderful time as a church to see, to hear the profession of faith, and to see people uh, who have come from death to life through Christ, symbolizing that with essentially going public with their profession of faith, being publicly identified as a follower of Jesus. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John promises will come, comes at Pentecost in early Acts. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's foretold here. The Bible teaches that in the New Testament age, when someone turns to Christ, they are indwelt by God's Spirit. God's Spirit comes and lives with them. That is the experience of all who have turned from their own trust and placed their trust in Christ. Sometimes in our current culture, people have referred to in church culture of the baptism of the Spirit and have treated it as some second experience for Christians. But unfortunately, that creates a distinction of different kinds of Christians that we don't see in Scripture. And we believe the context of Scripture doesn't show these multiple tiers. There's just two kinds of people in the world, those who are trusting in themselves and have not turned to Christ, and those who have turned to Christ and placed their trust in him. Which group are you in? All of this preparation, these prophetic promises of John, and this baptizing and urging a turning from sin, are preparation for the one that he is pointing to. And John is this redemptive hinge with patterns from the past and a foreshadowing of the future Christian realities. So we see the promises of hundreds of years in the first part of this passage. We see the preparer, and we see that even in the spotlight of fame, John's urgent message is to point people to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. That's the first reason we should, we should pay attention to these words and to see that Jesus is worthy of our attention. The second reason is the divine affirmation. And again, John, Mark efficiently introduces Jesus, saying that he came from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Now the rest of this book has about 90 something different scenes in it that Mark has put together to show us that Jesus is the Son of God and to pay off this first sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the remaining scenes, with the exception of one final epilogue scene about John the Baptist, everything is about Jesus in some way. And we see that this is really a book about Jesus and his mission. So the baptism of Jesus marks the start of a new phase in Jesus' ministry. And the, the apostles mention this in, in Acts 1 as they're reflecting on the life of Christ and, and awaiting Pentecost. They see the baptism of Jesus as an inauguration, a beginning of his ministry. The question is, if Jesus is sinless, and he is, and if John's baptism was connected with people turning from sin and turning uh, to prepare for the Messiah, why was Jesus baptized? And that's a good question. We see this inauguration of, the, of his ministry and his identifying with his people as the reason why Jesus, without sin, would still go through baptism. When he came to John, John said, why are you being baptized by me? I have need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said that it had a specific purpose. And we see this revelation of his relationship to God come out in verse 10. When Jesus came up out of the water, and, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And suddenly, with, all of these, with this verse, all sorts of Old Testament allusions are coming. We see in Genesis 1 that it says the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we see this language picked up again here as the spirit descends on him like a dove. In the Old Testament, we, saw that, we see that God's Spirit came temporarily on people for a specific purpose. But in the New Testament, we see that God's Spirit indwells his believers and indwells his people. And this starts with Jesus. In Isaiah 11, it said that for God's chosen servant, his Spirit would rest upon him. There would be a permanence to it. And in Isaiah 42, the opening scripture this morning, we see that God said again that his servant would have God's spirit with him. In Isaiah 64, the prophet said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And here we see in verse 10 that immediately he saw the heavens being torn, torn open, like ripped apart is the word, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. All of these things we see fitting together in God's plan. And nowhere else in scripture has God spoken like this to anyone. You think of examples of Enoch who walked with God, or Abraham who was called a friend of God, or Moses, or Elijah. God never called these his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. There's a missionary, Brooks Buser, that some of you are familiar with, who went as a missionary to a tribe in Indonesia called the Yumbi Yumbi people. And the story of going to the tribe, translating, the, learning their language, which had never been written down, translating the Bible into that language, and then starting local churches is a fascinating one and has been repeated many times in the last hundred years by faithful missionaries uh, spreading the word of God. 
And Brooks tells the story that as they started preparing this tribe of people, the Yumbi Yumbi, to hear the gospel, they started in Genesis so that they could have the context of what God was doing. And the people knew enough that there was some rescuer that was in the story that Brooks was telling. And somewhere they would get to the one who, was, who could rescue them from sin. And so as he told them about Noah, they asked him, is this the one? And as they got to Noah, uh, Abraham and to Moses and to David, they kept asking, so wait, is this the one that's going to come that's going to rescue us? And meanwhile, Brooks and his team, they were translating the Bible and they were getting ready to get to the point in the Gospels where they could tell, him, tell them the full story, to have taught them to read, and they could give them the Gospel in their language. And finally, when they got to Jesus, the tribal people had been burned so many times, they said, is this the one? And Brooks was able to tell them, yes, this, this is the one. Jesus is the one. Nowhere else in scripture are all three persons of the Trinity shown with the senses, perceived with the senses, hearing the Father, seeing the Son, and seeing the Spirit like a dove descending. It's truly extraordinary. And in all of the Old Testament, none of the Old Testament saints could take away sin. They could only offer sacrifices. None of the Old Testament saints could bring in the Holy Spirit. And now as the Old Testament gives way to the beginning and we see shadows of the past and foreshadowing of what's coming in the future, we see God's Spirit descending upon Jesus and inaugurating this ministry and anointing for his work. Here at last, on planet Earth, we see the Savior of the world. The preparer, John, has prepared, his mission is accomplished, and the promised one has been revealed to the world. The question for us, if this Jesus, who has been affirmed and certified by God, has this kind of authority in the world, what kind of authority does he have in your life? Even if you call yourself a Christian, does he control the things that you do, the decisions that you make, your priorities, your relationships? Does he control these things? The message is clear. Here is one who is pleasing to God. And if you want to be pleasing to God, you need to know the one whom God said was pleasing to him. He's a good one to look to and to follow. Maybe you're a visitor who's here today and you've been looking for spiritual answers, trying to find uh, answers for uh, bigger life questions. And so we've come today, this Sunday, to the bullseye of the Bible where the gospel is opened. And it says, if you want to know, uh, and we see that if you want to know God and to be well-pleasing, you need to know who Jesus is. This is the good news of the gospel, that people have a sin problem. We have been rebelling against a royal king, and we need a permanent solution. In the Old Testament, all of these sacrifices were given as temporary coverings, animal blood for human sin, a temporary covering. But Jesus came to give human blood for human sin, 
to be the atoning sacrifice who could take away our sins once and for all. And all those who turn from sin to Jesus are uh, given this gift that comes with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians, Paul writes that we have been accepted in the beloved. So Christian, do you understand how your acceptance by God is based on his acceptance of his beloved son? This message is about Jesus being worthy of our attention. We hear between six and 10,000 messages a day, they say. If that's true, it's possible that we can be dulled to what's most important, to the things that should have our attention. And we see in these verse, first 11 verses that Jesus is worthy of our attention. The things he came to do, no one else has ever been able to do. And the question, have we gotten distracted? Have you gotten distracted with other things, maybe even serving here in the church or seeking to be a good parent? and somehow along the way forgotten about who Jesus is and his claims on our life. You see, Jesus is the one promised in the Old, Old Testament scripture hundreds of years before. Jesus is the one prepared by John, the one that then the Father divinely affirms as pleasing to him. And we see that Jesus is the one that John the Baptist says will bring the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit comes. So who is Jesus to you? Is he a historical person? Just a wise person with good sayings? Is he someone that your family believes in? Or he, is he the object of your worship? And if he is, do his words carry sway in your life? Do they impact how you actually live? Do the things that he has laid out in scripture affect the decisions that you make? So throughout these verses, Mark is determined to get us right to the point to help his reader see that Jesus is the Son of God, eminently worthy of our attention and our obedience. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see this Jesus as worthy of our obedience in our trust in all areas of our life. We ask that as individuals, we would look to the one you have said is your beloved son. We ask that corporately and individually, we would not be distracted by the bombardment of other things, but that our focus would be more and more on Christ and on his glory. We thank you for this passage and for how you point to us what is important and who Jesus is. We pray that you would help him to rule and reign in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.